This week, Nighthead Sertaris have until May 2nd to submit alternative sponsor bid for Hertz, securitization bills to recover costs from Storm Uri make way through Texas House and Senate, friends and family and industry colleagues show support for Kamensky, Judge Swain denies preliminary injunction in Puerto Rico House Speaker's litigation against PROMESA Oversight Board. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest in developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Later, a replay of Reorg's webinar on IntelSat's Chapter 11 plan in DS from March 5th, where Reorg's Mark Fisher, Harvard Zhang, and Kevin Eckhart discuss the various creditor groups, competing interests, and emergent disputes among the case constituencies. It's Friday, April 30th. In the Hertz bankruptcy cases, Knighthead and Sertaris have until May 2nd to submit a bid to sponsor an alternative plan, and a potential auction is set for May 10 under bid procedures approved at a hearing by Judge Mary Walrath this week. Last week, Judge Walrath approved the DS for a plan sponsored by Centerbridge, Dundon, Warburg, Pincus, and the Ad Hoc Noldholder Group. The Centerbridge, Dundon, and Warburg plan relies on $6.4 billion of funding sources, including $3.9 billion of new money, including a fully backstop rights offering a direct preferred and common equity investment from the plan sponsors, and a $1.3 billion exit term loan. In choosing the Centerbridge, Dundon, and Warburg plan, the debtors pivoted from an earlier proposal by Knighthead and Sertaris, which as of this past week reaffirmed their interest in Hertz. During this week's bid procedures hearing, the debtors said they were close to getting to a point where the two bids could be judged side by side. The Knighthead and Sertaris-led alternative bidding group said they will be ready to present a fully committed proposal by the alternative bid deadline. In a reservation of rights filed prior to the hearing, the parties noted that despite prior issues with access to speak with the debtors' exit financing providers, they are now in active and productive discussions with multiple large bank exit financing sources and expect to have fully committed debt financing imminently. At a hearing in Texas on Thursday, Judge David Jones granted the Brazos Electric Power Cooperative's bar date motion, and counsel to the debtor disclosed both a forthcoming $350 million dip financing facility from J.P. Morgan and additional details regarding the debtor's views on specific bills working their way through the Texas state legislature. Judge Jones approved the bar date motion over the objection of the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, which had argued that actual rather than publication notice should be given directly to the co-op members' customers. Judge Jones pointedly told the UCC counsel that he was, quote, bothered a lot by the fact that, quote, I didn't hear word one about any non-tort claimants in the UCC's presentation. The judge said that he had concerns about the composition of the committee from day one a reference to prior comments about the imbalance between tort claimants and other unsecured creditors on the UCC. With regards to certain securitization bills, on Wednesday, the Texas Senate passed a bill that provides electric cooperatives the option to use securitization financing to recover costs incurred during Winter Storm Uri. The bill, SB 1580, introduced by Senator Kelly Hancock of Richmond Hills, offers co-ops financing that would create recurring non-bypassable charges on the ultimate consumer, rights to which are put in bankruptcy remote entity and secure the issued bonds. Another bill, HB 4492, would allow the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, to use securitization financing to fund the unpaid short pay amounts that would otherwise be uplifted to the wholesale market. Under the bill, the non-bypassable default charges would be collected from and allocated among market participants using the same methodology under ERCOT's default uplift protocols. That bill was postponed for consideration in the Texas House to Monday, May 3rd. Vistra increased its loss estimate related to the storm to approximately $1.6 billion, which is net of expected $500 million of self-help. And Reorg's coverage team held a webinar this week discussing the fallout from the storm, so please reach out to your salesperson for a replay. In the criminal trial of Dan Kamensky, the former head of Marble Ridge Capital, Kamensky's attorneys filed a 1,400-page sentencing memorandum with more than 100 letters from family, friends, and distressed debt professionals who say that Kamensky's actions last summer in the Neiman Marcus Chapter 11, which led to a criminal plea agreement earlier this year, were a one-time aberration from Kamensky's otherwise exemplary career. In its complaint against Kamensky, the DOJ alleged that he chilled rival bidding by Jeffries for a claims backstop he was working on with the UCC in violation of fiduciary duties Kaminsky owed as a committee member. Kaminsky pled guilty to bankruptcy fraud, one of four charges against him in the complaint. The other charges were dropped. 
Citing to letters from friends and colleagues in distressed at industry, the sentencing memorandum contends that Kamensky stood out in the rough-and-tumble world of distressed at investing for ethics, integrity, perspective, and fairness, as well as his willingness to collaborate, cooperate with, and even support others. Separately, letters from academics outline steps Kamensky has taken since last summer to provide life lessons to students at NYU, Duke, and University of Pennsylvania on his mistakes and the ethical considerations at play in distressed at careers. Kamensky's lawyer, June Kim, in a statement to New York said that, quote, as the many moving letters filed with the sentencing submission reflect, there has been a powerful outpouring of support for Dan as a person and as a professional from his colleagues in the industry. On Friday afternoon, the DOJ prosecutors handling Kamensky's case filed their own sentencing memorandum, saying that 12 to 18 months of jail time was necessary in order to reflect the seriousness of the offense, promote respect for the law, and ensure general deterrence. The DOJ sentencing documents include a victim impact statement from Kit Harrington of the U.S. Trustee's Office. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, during a two-day omnibus hearing this week, Judge Laura Taylor Swain denied the urgent scheduling motion filed by the UCC seeking a hearing on its renewed claim reclassification motion and denied the motion without prejudice finding it appropriate to hear the motion in connection with the disclosure statement hearing. Judge Swain reserved decision on two matters, PREPA's motion requesting approval of certain power purchase and operating agreements and the motion filed by the PROMESA Oversight Board and AFAF seeking allowance of an administrative expense claim against PREPA for certain amounts accrued in connection with PREPA's 15-year contract with Luma Energy. Judge Swain also issued a bench ruling denying Puerto Rico House Speaker Rafael Taitito Hernandez's request for a preliminary injunction in connection with his Act 167-related litigation against the PROMESA Oversight Board and certain Commonwealth officials over political funding. The dispute relates to a $1.85 million budget reallocation by the administration of Governor Pedro Perlusi to fund a special election called for under the law to pick a congressional delegation to lobby for statehood. Judge Swain also heard arguments related to the pending adversary proceedings. In the adversary proceeding between PREPA and fuel oil provider VTOL, in which PREPA seeks to nullify a total of six fuel oil supply contracts with the VTOL defendants and also seeks the return of approximately $3.89 billion paid to VTOL under those contracts. The court took the party's argument on submission and directed counsel to file a new U.S. Department of Justice report related to the matter and to meet and confer to determine whether further briefing is necessary on the new information. In the revenue bond adversary proceedings, Judge Swain denied the Oversight Board's motion to lift the court's litigation state to continue prosecuting certain counts of the adversary complaint and likewise denied the UCC's cross-motion for stay relief to seek disallowance of certain of the bondholder defendant's claims. Finding that the Oversight Board and the UCC both failed to put forth compelling reasons to lift the stay at this stage of the litigation, particularly when the 2020 summary judgment motions remain pending. Top Red Stories this week included Court Opinion Review, Scouts Honor, Shareholders to the Barricades and Garrett and Hertz, and the Cone of Silence and Intelsat. Our Capita UCC notches winning complex Sharia turnover litigation. Judge Lane finds safe harbor provisions inapplicable to generic Maraba and Wakala transactions. Near 70% drop in Diamond Sports Group normalized EBITDA costs by lower revenue, higher costs could complicate credit negotiations and potential exchange. Now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Thank you all. Hello, everyone. This week is much like last week, only there's more of it, by which I mean earnings. And given there's a lot of oil companies reporting, there will be plenty of discussion about sustainability goals. So the rumpus begins on Monday, May 3rd, with results from Bonanza Creek, Avis Rent-A-Car, and Transocean, among others. Tuesday, May 4th, Bausch, Centennial Resource Development and Comstock over there in Louisiana, Wednesday, May 5th, of course, the day that the Mexican Army defeated the French at the Battle of Puebla. And earnings, we have Del Monte Foods, Tupperware, Surgery Partners, and Cumulus Media. Thursday, May 6th, Deluxe Entertainment, Weatherford and Denbury, some post-reorg names for you, along with Laredo Petroleum, Cowan Petroleum, Oasis Petroleum, and High Point Resources. And Friday, the 7th of May, happy Friday in advance, and we have Northern Oil and Gas getting an update on that ground game, Cinemark and MoneyGram. And there's court action, too. Neiman Marcus, to wit, a sentencing hearing. And that is all for me. Back to New York. And next up, Reorg's webinar replay from March 5th, where the Reorg team discusses Intelsat's plan proposal, the competing interests in the case, and emergent legal issues, including the rights to relocation payments, make whole and default interest claims, and note holder guarantee claims. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's installment of the Reorg webinar series. We'll get started shortly. So thank you again. 
Today, we'll discuss the IntelSat bankruptcy, which has been going on for about 10 months, but has only recently begun heating up in the public domain with a proposed plan, competing term sheets, and accusations thrown by some of the many creditor groups that have formed throughout the cases. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research for Americas by Reorg, and joining me on today's webinar, also from Americas by Reorg, are Harvard John, Senior Reporter, and Kevin Eckhart, Senior Legal Analyst. Please note that if you'd like to access this webinar again uh, later, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page to, later today for Reorg clients. Next slide, please. So today uh, we'll run through uh, the cases where we are right now. Uh, Harvard will start with a timeline um, of um, what's happened uh, to date, go through the different creditor groups and the pressure points that's gonna uh, ultimately affect um, the outcome here. I'll go through the capital structure and financials uh, along with the debtor's proposed plan. And then Kevin's gonna uh, finish up before taking questions on the key legal issues, including relocation payments, guarantees, and make whole and uh, post-petition interest. So with that, um, Harvard, please start us off. Thanks, Mark. Um, so Intel set file for uh, bankruptcy in May last year, and it was a free fall. So there was no chapter 11 plan. Uh, and we didn't get any like material uh, update about the plan or the CBAN proceeds until like five months later in October when Cyrus, uh, which is a um, convertible note holder here, uh, sent a letter, letter to the company and the UCC and the uh, lead advisors to an ad hoc group of parent co uh, creditors saying that, you know, those, you know, CBAN um, proceeds uh, belong to SA, which is the parent company. And two months later, finally, where we got some action, you know, the company invited uh, creditors across the capital structure uh, to sign NDAs and you know, review you know, business plan, restructuring framework. Uh, so like basically chapter 11 plan discussion started then. Um, in January, uh, the company later disclosed that in January, uh, toward the end of the month, that uh, an ad hoc group of uh, convertible note holder made a proposal uh, that Mark uh, will uh, reveal later. And last month, a couple of things happened. The convert group uh, formally sought a declaratory judgment that those um, the spectrum proceeds belong to uh, the parent company, SA. And also the company uh, finally filed uh, its first plan of reorganization along with, uh, you know, uh, cleansing materials, uh, business plan and stuff like that. And earlier this week, uh, another party uh, stakeholder here joined the fray to get uh, those uh, accelerated um, uh, clearing proceeds, uh, SCS, which is former uh, CBAN Alliance member, arguing that those proceeds should belong to IntelSat US, which is um, a Delaware entity there um, at the supposedly the, 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 the OPCO level. Uh, so, and we're watching for two weeks from now uh, a hearing on the disclosure statement and also the motions from the Convert Group and also SES on the C-band uh, spectrum proceeds. Uh, next, please. Uh, so over the course of the, the restructuring of IntelSat, a, a couple of uh, creditor groups formed across the capital structure to you know, protect their economic interests. Uh, in the Intel, uh, in the Jackson Box secured term loan and notes uh, represented by Aiken Gump and also Center View Partners, this group provided the $1 billion dip when the company filed. And also an ad hoc group of secured note holders in the Jackson Box, uh, Wilmer Hale, who's representing them, uh, it's, I think it's reasonable to assume that they uh, kind of negotiated with the company about the, um, let's, call it, let's just call it premium and the, the make call pre, uh, pre premium to their clients. And also uh, there's a crossover group uh, holding securities across the structure, but very Jackson secure notes heavy, represented by Jones State and Holy at Loki. Um, at the parent call level, uh, the ICF notes and also Luxembourg notes represented by Paul Weiss and uh, Ducera partners. And also an ad hoc group of uh, convertible note holders uh, represented by Stroke and Lazard. Uh, Cyrus is the largest holder here and a couple of um, creditors kind of quote unquote defected from the, the Paul Weiss and Ducera group and joined the convertible note holder group here because of their um, holdings. Uh, next please. 
So after the company filed the uh, plan of reorganization and you know, all the stakeholders and people are following this credit uh, have brought up a number of key points and pressure points uh, becoming uh, front and center. First of all, the, uh, the equity considerations and the warrants and the strike price for the warrants and also the, uh, the con contingent value rights to the parent co creditors uh, have been brought up a lot uh, like uh, with my conversations with people that are involved. Uh, essentially, this is, you know, uh, like considered like leakage uh, from the point of view of a Jackson unsecured creditor. And also the premium, uh, you know, the make whole uh, payment and also the, um, the paying the default interest rate to Jackson secure debt, the term loans and secured notes uh, have become uh, a, top, a really topical uh, point too. I think uh, the UCC also object objected to this. Uh, I think, uh, oh, Kevin will talk about this later. So, and also the 10% uh, management incentive plan to uh, the management, the equity should, uh, has also been brought up as a, you know, leakage from the point of view of uh, the Jackson unsecured note holders and maybe the parent co uh, creditors too. And also it remains unclear, like, you know, who actually owns uh, the, uh, the 4.9 billion um, spectrum clearing proceeds, uh, at least three, um, uh, creditors or stakeholders have argued for, uh, you know, that they, they own, uh, their, the entity that issued their debt, uh, or their, the counterparty is that actually own the proceeds here. And also the company, uh, actually, uh, lowered the projections, especially the 2021 EBITDA, um, uh, you know, when they cleansed the discussion materials um, uh, last month compared with, you know, in May 2020 when the company filed for Chapter 11 and Mark's gonna uh, elaborate on that. And that's for me. Next, please. Thanks, Harvard. Um, so first, uh, I just wanna start with the capital structures and then we'll get into the financials that Harvard alluded to. Um, on the, um, the capital structure, this is actually just pulled right from the, uh, the company's um, first day declaration and then later from the uh, disclosure statement. But you could see here um, the public facing debt uh, that's at um, that's at Intel sat. This actually excludes um, intercompany held uh, debt, which I'll go into a little bit later. But um, the capital structure, the organizational structure is a pretty stacked structure. Jackson uh, holds the uh, the operating subsidiaries. Those subsidiaries either secure or guarantee um, Jackson debt or uh, feed into it through equity ownership. Um, and then the whole co is, is split amongst um, the number of stacked entities that you see here, which uh, provides certain guarantees um, to, to different debt. Uh, for instance, the Connect uh, senior notes are guaranteed by um, Luxembourg and, and Envision, um, also in, in addition to being issued out of, uh, out of Connect. Um, so part of the, the plan, uh, which we'll go into in a little bit, relies on cash at the different uh, entities, which you can see at the bottom right. So what I show here is um, cash um, at petition and then how it's changed through the um, uh, through the bankruptcy. And um, just just uh, points of notes, obviously, you can see the um, uh, the the operations, the, the proceeds of the dip, and then um, you know other uh, operations of the, the financing of the company happened at um, Intel, at Jackson, and its subsidiaries, and Envision and Connective largely held on to um, to their cash, with Envision burning about a million per month, um, according to the monthly operating reports, and um, Connect uh, burning. Um, uh, less than that with uh, very little cash, um, though built a little bit up at um, Intelsat SA. Um, other thing that um, Kevin will go into in a little while will be um, the release of guarantees. The uh, certain entities actually guaranteed some of the Jackson unsecured notes, which um, those were released um, at petition from ICF, Luxco, and SA. And then uh, I mentioned the um, certain debt also held um, by, uh, by other entities. That debt is the, uh, the Luxco debt. Um, next slide, please. So here are the financials that um, Harvard uh, had discussed. Um, as you can see here, you know, a couple of things to point out here is that the company made um, 
initial projections uh, for 2020 and 2021 are, are, are provided with their dip budget, uh, May 2021 um, projections, which were significantly higher than the projections that were disclosed along with the company's um, disclosure statement on the date they, uh, they, they filed their plan just a short while ago. Um, EBITDA has come down by about 200 million. Um, note that's adjusted EBITDA, cash EBITDA, um, which has always been uh, the case is significantly below um, what the company reports is adjusted EBITDA due to um, some deferred uh, revenue and, and, and certain other things as well. And then cash, uh, projection, cash flow projection. This excludes the relocation um, payments. Um, that that uh, has come down by almost 400 million, where the company expects in 2021 to generate unlevered free cash flow of um, of 240 million. Um, and then looking at the projections and what's changed, uh, the company has been declining, uh, seen declining revenue um, due to techno uh, technology over the last um, few years. So that's nothing nothing new here, uh, but there is a pretty sharp drop um, in, uh, in, re in recent years and then going forward, driven by um, gross margin. Um, and then, uh, you know, some to some, some extent, um, some other uh, cost items as well. Cash flow um, is hit by higher CapEx on um, the company's uh, assumptions. They, um, they, they, they have, they've said that um, as part of the margin decline has been because of the network business uh, pricing there. They also had a, one of their satellites uh, failing IS-29E, which the company said they need to secure capacity from third parties. Um, on the um, operating costs, it's not a surprise. The company actually has uh, commented a number of times because of, um, of either delays in CapEx or um, turning to more of a, um, an asset light, so to speak, uh, model that um, lower CapEx would be offset by higher operating expenses. But oddly, um, the forecast actually calls for um, relatively high CapEx in, um, in each of the next um, few years, especially uh, relative to, uh, to recent history. Next slide, please. So these are the uh, relocation um, payments that the company expects. Um, nothing new here. Um, as long as they relocate um, Spectrum um, and hit their certain milestones, they will receive um, uh, almost uh, $4.7 billion in, um, in net payments. Um, they, they gave in their projections operating costs that they um, started to, to spend and will continue on for the next couple, uh, couple of years. And get reimbursement on those um, on those costs, and then the um, uh, the, the big relocation payments, which um, were as part of the uh, the FCC auction uh, that will come in. Next slide, please. So the company, in developing their plan, um, said uh, it gave an enterprise value of 10.75 billion. Which, uh, when you back into it, you can see how they uh, they get there. Um, just backing out the relocation payments. Um, on an LTM basis, at least, um, it matches um, uh, the, the multiples match where other um, competitors um, are trading in that four and a half times um, range. Though note um, this, um, wh whereas the company's enterprise value likely takes into account the go-go acquisition, I'm not showing here, EBITDA because uh, it's on LTM uh, basis, uh, the company paid 400 million for uh, for that go-go business um, and expects to um, expects it to burn cash for the next couple of years. Next slide, please. So here's the plan. Uh, the way the company had um, laid it out was by um, by by different entity, but because of the uh, the guarantees and certain of the debt, um, some of the, uh, the the notes will be um, getting value from different entities. So what I try and do here is combine it, um, combine it all. Um, the debtors, you know, as we previously discussed, um, the debtors plan of the support of just 3.8 billion of its um, of its funded debt. The parties that had signed on to the RSA included members of the Intelsat Jackson ad, um, ad hoc group, uh, members of the firstly note holder group, members of the uh, the consenting Holco, um, Holco note holder group. Um, and then for percentages, this is based on uh, when the company filed their disclosure statement, 73% um, of Connect senior note holders 
uh, supported, 37% of the Luxco senior notes, 36% of first lien notes, um, 30, about 35% of the term loan facility claims, 32% of it converts, and um, only 7.6%, um, they said, of the Jackson um, senior, um, senior unsecured notes were party to the, the PSA. So um, in looking at the, uh, the different notes, Jackson term loan secure um, in the secure notes paid in full, um, uh, subject to uh, the agreement that they reached on um, default interest and uh, make whole claims, which Kevin will go into, um, into shortly. Um, into the Jackson uh, unsecured notes receive cash of 500 million in equity and then interconnect uh, convertible Luxco notes receive a combination of equity warrants and then in the case of um, interconnect the, um, the, the, the CVRs as well. The warrants here, um, the plan proposes two series of warrants. Um, series A and Series B. The Series A warrants would be convertible into 8% of the reorganized common stock. And um, interestingly, it's at an exercise price, uh, which the company defines as instrument calculable base, uh, which is just 3.75 billion. So they're using the uh, plan equity value and not the, um, the, the par value of, um, of, of the unsecured notes at, at Jackson. And then you have series B warrants, which are convertible into one and a half percent of new common stock struck at 150% of that um, instrument calculable base. Um, and then below along with the um, NAK filed um, on uh, when the company filed their disclosure statement, they um, also put out a proposal that the convertible note holder group had given to the company um, which they were asking for four and a half percent of reorganized equity, five-year warrants, five percent of the equity, which they say would be a fifty million dollar value, and then thirty-six million dollars in cash. Which actually, the cash um, sort of lines up with um, with what um, the, the the company um, plan has them receiving, which is about thirty percent of the um, the cash that's at Envision. Uh, so that's the plan. Um, now I'm going to um, Pass it off. Uh, I was, um, I was, uh, pass it off to Kevin. Uh, I was going to go through uh, some of the uh, the legal issues. All right, the fun stuff, the key legal issues. You know, I wrote a, a story a couple months ago about how slow this case had been and how it didn't really seem to belong in Chapter Eleven um, with as little going on as it was, and it's gotten a lot more interesting. Uh, in the last few weeks, uh, the key legal issues. A little summary again. So far, there may be more issues sort of growing out of these at the confirmation or disclosure um, at that stage of the case. But the key issues right now, first and foremost, the entitlement to the 4.8 billion or about, about 4.7 billion net FCC accelerated relocation payments. Um, we've got three contenders for that among the debtor entities or sort of two and a half. We've got Intelsat SA, the ultimate hold co, the Intelsat Jackson entities, where the secured debt is, um, and Intelsat US, which is a sub and a guarantor of the Jackson debt, but could have some effect if it's the holder on unsecured recoveries. Um, there's the allowance of the very large 1.8 billion SES Americom claim. This is the outsider claim, sort of like uh, the Akthar Rockford plaintiffs in the Mallinckrodt case, the big claim that is uh, is not involved in the negotiations and is uh, throwing, throwing bombs from the outside in. Um, then we have the enforceability of the parent co-guarantees of the Jackson Lux Co notes, um, which Mark and Harvard briefly referred to, which could be very important depending on the relocation payment issue. And then our favorite current issue um, in a lot of bankruptcy cases, the allowance and payment of make whole premiums and the allowance and payment of post-petition default interest. Both of those relate to the Jackson secured loans. Uh, next slide, please. All right, now here's a little background on the 5G relocation payments um, in the SBS relationship, um, just to set up this dispute. Uh, a couple of years ago, the FCC uh, decided that they wanted to encourage 5G rollout in the United States by using some of the C-band that Intelsat and other satellite operators use for uplink and downlink services. Um, and they decided 
that they would clear that C-band and move 5G services there. So there were two options for doing this uh, that were mooted at the time. There was the public auction option, which is what eventually happened, where the FCC would auction off the right uh, to, to potential 5G rollout companies, the right to use the lower C-band, um, and then would pay some amount to the current C-band users to compensate them for moving off of that spectrum. And then there was the private auction option, which would have allowed Intelsat and the other holders of C-band uh, spectrum to sell that spectrum directly to 5G users, which would have been considerably more lucrative for them. If you look at the, the outcome of the, of the public auction and how much the FCC is taking in from those 5G parties, you can see the hopes for Intelsat were in the multiple tens of billions. Um, so the actual Intelsat entity that has the licenses to the to the, use the C-band spectrum that's being transitioned is Intelsat License LLC, and this is a Jackson guarantor entity. The actual what we call the space station operator um, is Intelsat US LLC. That's another Jackson guarantor. Um, after the FCC announced they were going to go into this process. Um, Intelsat and several other of the satellite operators, including SES, entered into a consortium agreement to form the C-Band Alliance. Um, and the goal of that alliance was to lobby for the private C-Band 5G auction, which, as, as I said a moment ago, would have resulted in considerably more in proceeds for the operators, for the C-Band operators. And as part of that, Intelsat and SES agreed to split the proceeds of either the public auction or whatever was procured, and that's part of the dispute, 50-50. In November 2019, FCC Chair Ajit Pai tweeted that he was going, the FCC was going to go with a public auction, um, which was obviously a disappointment to the satellite operators. Um, in February 2020, the FCC issued a draft order that had an initial relocation payment allocation that favored Intelsat. In March 2020, there was a final allocation in order that created this 4.87 billion number we're talking about to Intelsat and allocated about 900 million less to SES. Um, the FCC order from March 2020 includes a definition of, it uses Intelsat throughout and then it defines Intelsat as Intelsat License LLC. That should be LLC, not LCC. Um, and again, that's the entity that actually holds the licenses for the C-band spectrum at the FCC. All right, next slide, please. Okay, so one more sort of threshold issue before we get into who is entitled to the relocation payments. And that is, um, there's a gatekeeping threshold issue of standing here. Intelsat SA, Intelsat US, and Intelsat license, of course, are debtor entities controlled by the debtors. And they have standing to raise their own entitlement to the relocation payments. Um, the trick here is that the plan that was filed, which these entities are all parties to, suggests that they will not. And instead um, involves an intercompany settlement of whatever claims that these entities may have against each other relating to the relocation payments. Um, Intelsat SA and Intelsat License have a special committee of their board of directors who have retained counsel um, who have signed off on that settlement, which basically gives the, the, the bulk of the value from the relocation payments to the Intelsat Jackson secured creditors. Um, it doesn't specifically allocate the relocation payments, but if you look at the way treatment handles, that's obviously what they're agreeing to. Intelsat US does not have its own independent board and council, and that's an issue that'll come up shortly. So because the companies themselves have not argued that they're entitled to the relocation payments or have, um, in the debtor's view, settled their claims for the relocation payments through the plan, the convertible note holders have sought standing to raise the claims on Intelsat SA's behalf. Uh, they have argued that the Intelsat SA special committee is, quote, paralyzed. Uh, basically, they've argued that the Intelsat SA special committee has made a terrible decision to abandon its claims to the relocation payments <clears throat> and that they need to be allowed to come in and make those arguments. SES seeks standing to raise the entitlement issue on Intelsat US's behalf. As I mentioned, their point is there's no special committee there, no independent counsel. 
no one is thinking about Intelsat US and its creditors, specifically SES's um, interest in those relocation payments. Um, under the disclosure statement, the debtors have said that if the convertible note holder's motion for standing is granted, the plan may be quote unquote unconfirmable. And that's their way of saying that if the court were to give standing to the converts, um, then it would throw a serious monkey wrench into the plan. Of course, it's possible the court could grant standing to the converts and then find that notwithstanding their arguments, Intelsat Jackson is entitled to the payments. Um, and the same with Intelsat USA on SES. Um, but the standing issue provides the judge with a very early opportunity to nip this stuff in the bud. We'll see how he handles it on the 17th. Um, but he could just deny standing, say that the special committees have satisfied their fiduciary duties and prevent litigation over any of the issues that we're about to talk about on relocation. Um, and again, that, that's sort of open for, uh, for the hearing on the 17th. Next slide. All right, well, let's talk about the first competitor for the accelerated relocation payments, and that's Intelsat Jackson. And we put them first because they're basically the default choice. Um, as the licensor of the, or the licensee of the C-band spectrum that's being relocated, and as the entity defined as Intelsat in the FCC's March order, and also under the plan where the debtors have apparently allocated a considerable amount of the accelerated relocation payments to Jackson creditors, we can say that that's sort of the default choice. And that's the one entity that, of course, there's no standing required. The, the debtors have agreed to that, so there, there's no threshold issue on standing. Again, the plan allocates value consistent with Jackson, the Jackson entities, and in, that's Intelsat license LLC, um, being entitled to the relocation payments as evidenced by the full payout on the Jackson secured loans and notes and the 95% of reorganized equity going to the Jackson unsecured notes. Um, there's a relatively small recovery for the Intelsat SA parent, parent co-null holders in the form of warrants. Um, the arguments, again, um, Jackson, uh, Intelsat license holds the C-band licenses from the FCC, and those are what are being um, eliminated as part of the relocation process. Um, and Intelsat license, the Jackson entity is surrendering the licenses and it's actually undertaking the relocation uh, process to move that, that C-band spectrum to 5G to comply with the FCC order. Next slide. So the next competitor uh, is Intelsat SA. Um, on February 8th, the convertible note holders filed their motion for standing to push SA's entitlement to the relocation payments. It includes a draft complaint um, for a declaratory judgment that SA is entitled to the relocation payments, which would be filed if standing is granted. Uh, their argument is that Intelsat SA is the ultimate corporate parent for the entire structure and that the FCC has essentially treated the whole organization as one entity via Intelsat SA. In other words, that the word Intelsat just means the whole organization and that starts at the top. So their view is that since the FCC has always dealt with uh, Intelsat SA at the top of the organization, SA is responsible for any penalties imposed by the FCC if the lower portion of the C-band is not cleared by the outside date of December 5th, 2025. In other words, they're saying that Intelsat SA is the entity that is taking the risk of the C-band not being cleared, not in a hurry, but by the outside date and therefore should receive the rewards of the, the accelerated relocation payments. Um, their argument, again, is that the SEC has treated the whole organization as one entity, which uh, I, I would expect the debtors to point out has a sort of substantive consolidation feel to it, which they, which they're not, uh, which they would not endorse. Um, Intelsat SA, the, the convertible note holders say, must be properly incentivized through reloc relocation payments to clear the spectrum on the expedited timetable. Um, they contend that the ownership of the licenses by Intelsat license is not relevant because the relocation payments are not a purchase price for the licenses. They are a payment for clearing um, the space that was taken up by those licenses, but those licenses are effectively being eliminated and not purchased with the relocation payments as a purchase price. And therefore, it's not consideration for the licenses. So the entity holding the licenses is irrelevant. They have also argued that the entity doing the relocation work is irrelevant 
um, because the relocation work is being compensated by the $1.3 billion in reimbursement payments that the FCC has promised, which are separate from the $4.87 billion in relocation payments. Um, so th their argument is basically that Intelsat's at the top, SA is at the top of the organization, and the FCC is treating this all as one organization, and therefore um, the money should flow to SA because it's ultimately responsible to the FCC. Next slide. So now we have Intelsat US, um, and Intelsat US is a Jackson guarantor, like Intelsat uh, license, um, but there's still some, some important implications if Intelsat US is entitled to the relocation payments. On March 3rd, just a couple days ago, SCS filed a motion for standing to argue that Intelsat US um, is entitled to the relocation payments. And of course, that's important to them because as they point out, Intelsat US was their contractual counterparty under the C-Band Alliance Consortium Agreement we mentioned. And that's the 50-50 sharing, let's lobby for a private sale um, industry agreement. Um, so of course, SES's claim, if allowed, um, is going to lie against Intelsat US, and thus SES would be a major creditor of Intelsat US. They argue that their claim will be allowed um, in that March 3 motion because they've uncovered smoking gun evidence uh, uh, in support of their claim and discovery, and we'll, we'll get to the allowance issue in a second. Um, their argument is that Intelsat US, the space station operator, is entitled to the money instead of Intelsat license, the mere license holder, and SA, the parent company, because Intelsat US is doing the, quote, technical and operational work of clearing the C-band. They're actually doing the nitty-gritty stuff. Their point is that SA and Intelsat license are merely shell entities. Um, they try to distinguish the use of Intelsat license in the FCC order by saying that um, there were numerous directives in the order to the Intelsat as the space station operator and Intelsat US as the space station operator. So the FCC must have meant Intelsat US. Um, the plan only gives Intelsat US creditors, and again, that, that would be largely SES, 4.9% of the value, according to uh, SES, and, and their claim is if those payments go to US, then considerably more of the value would be allocated um, to Intelsat US. Um, the debtor's point is that payments, that the FCC relocation payments belong to Intelsat license, and that was the, the first slide of these three competitors, and then they would be paid out uh, to the Jackson entities and their creditors pursuant to the 2018 interco agreements. The important issue with Intelsat US is because it's a Jackson guarantor, if the money flows through Intelsat US, then the secured creditors would still um, get the bulk of the relocation payments. But SCS is suggesting that there is substantial value in the enterprise beyond the relocation payments, such that value would flow past those secured creditors and to them if they are the major unsecured creditor of US. Um, and that would have big implications for the Jackson unsecured note holders um, who might not, uh, the, the flow of funds might be redirected away from them if the money goes through US or license, or they may be peri pursue um, with SES. So that's why the, the US issue is, is also very important, even though it's still just a Jackson entity. Next slide. So let's talk about the SES claim again. This is the only really large claim issue um, out there. SES is trying to get $1.8 billion. Um, SES's argument, and they have filed a proof of claim, um, Intelsat has objected to it, SES has filed a response. Uh, their argument is that Intelsat abandoned the 50-50 split under the C-Band Alliance Consortium Agreement when the FCC allocated a greater share to Intelsat in February 2020, um, their point is that the company was on the verge of bankruptcy, um, kind of an unsurprising self-evident point, and that therefore they bailed on their, their deal with SES in bad faith to take an extra 900 million, really 450 million. It was a 900 million swing divided by two um, because they needed the funds to avoid bankruptcy. The consortium agreement, uh, Intelsat counters, was a 50-50 deal, but it only applied to the private auction that the C-Band Alliance was pursuing, which Pi, again, tweeted in November 19, 
was not going to be the direction they go on. So until Sat's point is that when Pi made that decision and when the February 2020 interim order based on that decision came out, that the C-band alliance agreement essentially became optional. SES counters that the consortium agreement lacks a unilateral termination provision that would allow Intelsat to uh, terminate once a public auction was chosen, um, and that the parties considered the possibility of a public auction long before that became an issue. In other words, their point is, this was an agreement for the long haul, public auction, private auction, nothing in it said this terminates when the FCC pursues a public auction. Um, if that's what they wanted to do, they being Intelsat, then they could have very easily written it in there, and they did not. Um, SES also argues that the evidence, and this is their smoking gun evidence, emails, texts that we haven't been provided with, um, they're redacted from the motion, but SES claims that Intelsat continued working as part of the C-Band Alliance after the November 2019 public auction tweet, and that they actually had a celebratory dinner in February of 2020 after the initial allocations, where despite the fact that Intelsat was allocated more by the FCC, the parties reiterated their agreement to share 50-50. It's a somewhat dramatic story that uh, at 3 a.m. the next night, um, a call came in from Intelsat CEO to SES's CEO, where he said, sorry about that. I know we were drinking champagne yesterday, but we are going to abandon the 50-50 uh, the sharing and pursue a greater share, um, and that it was a complete shock to SES at that point. Um, if the SES claim, Intelsat further argues that if SES's claim is allowed, it should be equitably subordinated because SES sent some confidential materials to the FCC related to this whole issue. Um, SES denies that and says that if their claim is allowed, it should be an unsecured claim against Intelsat US. The amount that they get to is the $900 million swing. So they accuse Intelsat of, quote, stealing $450 million. So they want 900 million, and then they want that multiplied by two as punitive damages. So that's how they get to their 1.8 billion figure. Um, those again, those claims would be behind the Jackson secured claims. And if allowed, and if the relocation payments belong to US, we could have a valuation issue at confirmation over how much value gets past the secured claims and how much of the remainder goes to the Jackson unsecureds and to SES. Next slide. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now let's move on to the next issue, which is the guarantee issue, um, the enforceability of the Jackson Lux Co uh, notes guarantees. Uh, this is a crucial issue for Jackson Lux Co creditors if the court were to decide that SA is entitled to the relocation payments. Um, if that is the case, then they would be peri pursue with the SA and parent co note holders and share recoveries. If the guarantees are gone, um, then they would be behind those uh, note holders and they would get the bulk or all of the recovery from the accelerated relocation payments paid to Intelsat SA. Again, that assumes Intelsat SA wins on the entitlement issue. Um, the loan documents provide, uh, however, that the parent co-guarantees can be released immediately upon notice to the indenture trustees. And on May 13th, the day before the bankruptcy filing, uh, the debtors sent a release notice to the indentured trustees releasing those guarantees. So under the, the strict view of the agreements, those guarantees were released. Nevertheless, um, the trustee, the indentured trustees for the Jackson and Luxco notes did file proofs of claim against the parent co's um, with some vague language suggesting that the release of the guarantees was a violation of the indentures and the loan agreements. Um, or somehow violated the Trust Indenture Act, an old statute that, uh, that protects sacred rights, and we won't get too much into that. Um, on February 11th and 12th, the convertible note holders filed objections to those claims, their arguments, um, and they filed a separate one for the Jackson guarantee and a separate one for the Luxco guarantee. They argue that, of course, most obviously the guarantees were validly released before filing, that this is something that um, was specifically contemplated by the credit agreements and the indentures, and it was complied with, therefore, no harm, no foul. And of course, this was something that um, Cyrus, one of the converts, had demanded that the board do in a letter 
to the company um, before those releases were were made before the bankruptcy filing. Their second argument is that there is no violation of the Trust Indenture Act, um, which would sort of trump the plain terms of the credit agreements and the indentures because the TIA doesn't apply to these agreements. Um, they also argue that even if it does apply under Second Circuit case law, um, the TIA allows the release of parent co-guarantees. And there's some, been some recent cases to that effect. They also argue that it's not an avoidable transfer issue because the guarantees were not property of the debtors. They were property of creditors. And obviously for a fraudulent transfer, you need a transfer of a debtor property and not property of a third party. So the, the fact that it happened one day before the bankruptcy, although a little uh, suspicious to any bank bankruptcy practitioner who's used to preferences um, is irrelevant um, and those guarantees are not enforceable. Next slide. Um, then we get to, you know, again, one of our favorite issues, the make whole premiums. Um, the, the UCC filed an objection on February 16th to both payment of the Jackson note holders uh, make whole premium and the Jackson lenders receipt of post-position default interest. The, the plan provides for a what it calls a secured creditor settlement um, that pays about $115 million in premiums to the note holders. Um, and that's about 77% of the claimed amount. In other words, under the plan, the debtors are arguing, and they don't elaborate on this very carefully, that the um, Jackson note holders wanted 100% of their premiums. They agreed to 77%. This is a settlement. It is reasonable. Um, and therefore, um, the, that amount should be paid. The UCC argues um, that that is not the case, that the debtors cannot pay the make whole premium. And, and they differ a little from some of the case law we've seen and arguments we've seen recently on make holes, which focus on the momentive ultra decisions and, and, and that mess. Um, they try to sort of cut the Gordian knot on that. And, and they, they focus on the receipt of current payments as adequate protection by the note holders. Um, their point is that since the note holders have received current interest and principal payments as adequate protection, they have not been harmed by any defaults to the extent any happened because the bankruptcy under one of the issues, the bankruptcy is the only alleged default. Um, and therefore forcing the company or allowing the company to pay the make whole premiums would be a punishment um, for Intelsat filing chapter 11. In other words, the note holders are being treated exactly as they are outside of chapter 11. Um, the only thing that would trigger the payment of the make whole it, or, or prepayment premiums is the filing of the 11. So payment of those premiums would be a punishment for filing 11, which is not allowed by public policy. They've also argued, and this is more typical in the, in the make whole context, that the amounts owed or amounts claimed are not liquidated damages, which would be allowed under New York law, but a penalty. Um, their point is that that these are not liquidated damages because they do not reasonably approximate the injuries to the note holders from the filing, um, which is nothing because, again, they're receiving current payments as adequate protection. Um, they also argue that allowance uh, and payment of the make whole premiums would be unreasonable fees, charges, or interest costs under Section 506B, which only allows secured creditors to get reasonable interest and in post-petition charges. But their real core argument on the make whole premium is that um, the fact is the debtor's only default under these notes is the bankruptcy. The bankruptcy hasn't had any effect on them because of adequate protection. So they should not be entitled to receive any additional charges or, or premiums provided for under the credit agreement. Uh, next slide, please. So finally, we get to the post-petition default interest. And you know, people who I talk to about uh, the default interest make whole issue, which are sort of linked together, they were litigated um, together in the PG&E case, for example, is I always say, you know, the, the default interest claim is stronger legally than the make whole claim. And that's reflected by um, the secured creditor settlement um, in the plan. The make holes are being paid out at 77% to the note holders lenders are getting 90% of their claims for post-petition default interest. There's no amount on that, but the UCC pegs it at about 90 million in their objection. Um, their arguments um, are somewhat similar to their arguments on the make whole, but a little different. They've argued the loans were never accelerated pre-petition. So there's been no default interest trigger, even though there was a notice um, that default interest was due 
Um, the loans were never accelerated. The lenders have received current payments as adequate protection. And therefore, because there's been no acceleration and no payment default, um, there's nothing overdue under the loan documents. And therefore, there's no default interest to be paid on any overdue amounts. In other words, since everything's current, everything's paid, there's been no acceleration. It's not that there's no default, it's that there's no overdue amount on which default interest could be calculated. They've also argued that Section 506B, again, covering unsecured uh, creditors, recoveries of fees, charges, interests, et cetera, um, that a court is, has flexibility and discretion to disallow post-petition default interest. In this case, it would be inequitable with unsecured creditors not receiving full payment for secured creditors to receive default interest and make whole premiums. Uh, and I think that is my my last slide. Thanks, Mark, uh, for the intro. Let's let's go to the next one. I think it's our lovely photos, and I'll turn it back over to Mark for the question and answer session. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so, as Kevin said, that concludes uh, the presentation, and we're going to move over to uh, Q and A. I'm going to give it a few seconds to see what comes in. So uh, first question we have um, is on the um, intercompany debt. Um, there's debt held by other entities, just asking to, uh, to explain uh, what that was. And yeah, that's, um, so prior to the company filing for bankruptcy, um, certain entities, and it was really sort of a way to funnel cash, um, entities borrowed uh, or, or sort of bought up, um, Intel sat uh, Lux debt uh, as of the petition date until Sat Envision held approximately, um, uh, it was just 600,000 of, um, of, of Lux debt until Sat Connect held approximately 882 million until Sat Jackson held approximately 220.6 million. And um, it was of these 2024 Lux Co notes, it was just 100,000 of that was held by. Um, the uh, by, by third parties. Now in the uh, the plan, um, uh, the company, you know, the debtors uh, gave the um, claims at the certain at the different entities and the claims that they gave for the Luxco entities seem to have excluded uh, that intercompany debt, but I imagine that um, the value at the different entities took into account um, that intercompany um, that intercompany debt. Uh, There's a question on uh, cap the company's capital expenditure forecast. Um, just looking through it, as I mentioned, it was a little bit higher than, um, or sort of a lot higher actually, than the company has been spending um, recently. Um, under they've been spending under 200 million, the, um, the the numbers jumped to uh, as much as 500 million in one year. The company in their presentation um, had given some color on this, and as I mentioned, this is different than what um, than what they had. Um, what they had said pre-petition, the company said there was moving to less of an asset um, heavy model and, and replaced with operating um, expenditures. But um, in their cleansing materials that they filed when uh, they filed their plan and disclosure statement, the company talked about um, excluding the C-band clearance payments. Um, so in addition to those one and a half billion dollars of capital spending, um, between 2020 and 2026, 1.2 billion of that would be for um, uh, next-gen satellites. Um, talking about four software-defined satellites um, and additional ground assets related to that, which would total 1.2 billion. That's the bulk of the uh, the, the future spending, and then um, traditional growth and replacement um, of approximately 300 million, and that's over um, that six-year period. I would note that. Um, other than the prior few years where the company um, has really cut spending dramatically in, um, you know, earlier years, about four or five years ago, the company did um, spend considerable more money on, um, on capital spending um, in, in certain years, up to 700 million um, about. So um, spending on, on CapEx is, is certainly not new to, um, uh, to, to Intelsat. Um, so th this one, um, there's a couple of questions on the contingent value rights. Um, I um, 
you know, we're, we're sort of scratching our heads on, on them as well and what they'll be, but I'll, um, you know, let um, Kevin and, um, and, and Harvard share a little bit more on those contingent um, value rights that were given to the, uh, the ICF notes, um, if you guys want to jump in. Well, well, I guess I could speak to what they are, um, as, as opposed to, you know, what the possibility of them moving around. The, the point of the contingent value rights appears to us, and this is a new concept in the plan, um, it is essentially that um, if any new money comes in under new contracts, that's the way it's phrased, for relocation, then that money would go to the ICF note holders. Um, and, and there isn't a, a solid example of that in the plan, but the way we see it is that would be any additional money from the FCC, which, is, which seems extremely unlikely to come in, um, or any money that one of the 5G providers would pay the company to accelerate the relocation process even more uh, quickly than the FCC deadline. So if, say, Verizon bought a ton of the 5G licenses, they wanted to deploy service, they're waiting for C-band to get cleared. They've paid good money for those. And they say, hey, we're going to pay you $100 million to um, move those even further. Uh, the, the likelihood of those coming up seems low. Um, and so, that, you know, that's why they're called contingent value rights. Um, it doesn't seem apparent that any of the 5G operators would be willing to spend, pay money to Intelsat at this point to speed the process up even faster than the FCC has set up. Um, but if they do come in, those would go to the ICF notes. Now, Harvard, you've been talking to the to the parties involved here. Uh, do you get any sense that these are one of the the right the value rights under the plan that are likely to move around as as part of a settlement? Um, I think you know obviously that's a possibility. And if you look at the um, the support level of the current plan uh, when it was filed. You know, it's in a 70s percentage for the ICF, and which is you know uh, high com compared with the other tranches, and seven percent I think for the uh, converts, and you have the 30 percent ish in the middle for all the bunch of other tranches. So, you know, to get them on board, uh, this the pie of you know economics and considerations need to be recut and what would make you know uh, a sufficient amount of creditors and cross classes uh, to be able to support a plan to get it confirmed that's TBD uh, now those are so also add that the CVR of course like you know like Kemba mentioned 100 percent is going to ICF but the value seems like there's like a discount like only 50 percent of the uh, additional CBAN proceeds would be converted into on uh, uh, like convert convert into like a common stock value equal to like fifty percent, uh, five zero of the uh, the additional proceeds, whatever they can get from the um the, maybe the, the 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 winning the bidder winning bidders of the uh, C band spectrum. I see someone else asked about um what the applied dilution is <clears throat> to post emergence equity owners, specifically the Jackson note holders getting ninety five percent based on the current draft, I would think that it's it's tough to say now. Um, you guys might have a different view, but it seems very tough to say until we know if there actually are any CVRs and what the extent of those amounts would be. Yeah, that's right. I would agree with you on that. And um, and sticking actually with the equity, there's, there's a question about if the converts argument were to prevail, it appears there could be significant recovery for the equity. Uh, but I imagine this uh, goes into the the guarantee issue, um, you know, significant um, guarantees um, that, as we mentioned, were uh, eliminated, but um, that um, that 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 could exist there, um, or that did exist uh, prior to the company filing related to the uh, the unsecured notes. So that would affect that there. But I don't know, if, Kevin, if you had wanted to add anything. Yeah, to that. I, no, I agree. I, the the really crucial issue is those guarantees because if there's 5.4 billion of guaranteed debt at the SA hold co level, um, then the the money going up there as at, in the form of the relocation payments should the converts win would be obviously substantially diluted. Um, but it seems like, the, it seems like um, if I'm gonna say that the SA's, the SA creditors have the weakest case for the relocation payments, which I, I think they do. And I think their proposal shows that they, you know, they don't think that's a, that's a, a, a 
high probability of success maneuver. Um, I would also say that they definitely have the better side of the legal argument on those releases um, being enforceable uh, under the agreements because that's specifically what they provided for. Um, and, and related to that equity at the holding company, I just wanted to mention one issue that's come up in our discussions, and that is, um, you know, does maintaining the equity at the SA level preserve net operating loss carryovers for uh, at the Luxembourg level um, by maintaining ownership of those entities um, in the same way? Um, and this goes into a very complex ish tax issues on NOLs in the United States. Generally, NOLs are difficult to preserve through Chapter 11, and we bankruptcy attorneys often joke that if you're arguing for the NO for the NOLs, you're you're in a losing position. That's a good way to tell. Um, the fact is, we don't know how the Luxembourg NOLs will work. So I will plead ignorance on whether on whether maintaining those shares. But I can say that you know, if it's like American law, then maintaining equity at the SA level could. Um, be very useful in preserving some very sizable NOLs. But for now, we're, uh, we're sort of waiting for that issue to percolate up a little more and, uh, you know, telling everybody to call their Luxembourg lawyers. Great. And then, um, thanks. And we have just one last question in the queue. Kevin, if you want to, um, you know, take a shot of pine on this one, how clear of an answer might we expect to get regarding the SCS motion on the 17th? Well, we could. Uh, we could get very, very clear answers on the 17th. The judge would ha has an opportunity to head off all of the entitlement, relocation payment entitlement issues, and to that extent, head off a lot of the issues with the SES allowance. Um, he could simply find that the debtors involved, Intelsat US and Intelsat SA, the, the sort of competing entitlement holders, um, that they're... they're special board of directors or their or their regular board of directors in the US case have made a decision to settle these entitlement claims through the distributions under the plan that that is a reasonable business judgment i'm sure that's what the debtors will argue um, made after careful consideration of all of the facts and eventualities and all of the arguments um, and say i'm not going to grant standing to ses to prosecute claims on behalf of us or to the convertible note holders to prosecute claims on behalf of SA. And at that point, the entitlement issue is essentially over. Um, there could be fights at confirmation on the edges, on fiduciary duties, on, you know, they could they would come up with something on that, but that would really head off the issue on the 17th. Um, the judge could take that opportunity. A judge, bankruptcy judges tend to want to get cases moving and avoid litigation of disputes, and they are, um, Notably in this district, and I, I won't impugn the judges, but to say that this is a district that's known as debtor friendly and the company's filed there for a reason. Um, and judges, bankruptcy judges generally are very deferential to the business judgment of boards of directors, especially independent boards, um, like in this case. So the judge could cut them off. My guess is that will not happen. Um, because it, is, it would be a pretty draconian thing to say we're not even going to have an argument about this. Um, but the judge might um, tell them where he's leaning, tell them where he thinks he's going to go, as bankruptcy judges often do, and say, all right, guys, why don't you go mediate this? Why don't you go talk about this and uh, try and come back and come to a resolution, sort of like what happened in the CBL case with the Wells Fargo dispute. You know, the judges will subtly um, share where they think they're going, and uh, we could see that narrow down. I'd be very surprised if there isn't some clarification, at least, of the odds of those entitlement payment battles um, becoming pitched um, cutthroat hand-to-hand -hand combat or whether they move on to a sort of mediate this and come up with a solution issue uh, on the 17th. Great, thanks Kevin and thanks Harvard. Um, so that's all the questions we have to, uh, time for today. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data and analytics for law firms, investments, investors and advisors. If you are already a Reorg subscriber, please send any further questions you have on this or other topics to customer success at reorg.com. Remember, a replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. And again, I'd like to um, extend a big thank you to Kevin and Harvard. Uh, job well done. And thank you all. Have a great day. Thanks, Mark. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com media page as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. See you next Sunday.